This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, Robin Hood CEO and Five Days author Wes Moore looks at the 2015 Baltimore uprising following the death of Freddie Gray. He's interviewed by Demo Senior Fellow Heather McGee. Hi, Wes. How are you? I'm good. I'm so happy to see you, and I'm so grateful for you doing this. Really, this is thank so you. great um, to give our audience the opportunity to um, get to know best-selling author Wes Moore, author of I Am Wes Moore, and now a new book that could not have been more timely. Um, you co-wrote the book, I should say, with Erica Green, who's an award-winning reporter who covers education for the New York Times, and she's a former Baltimore Sun reporter who was part of the team that was the finalist for the 2016 Pulitzer Prize um, for its breaking news coverage of the death of Freddie Gray and the events that followed. Um, this book is just a beautiful way to understand what happened to Freddie Gray, what's happened to Baltimore, what happens in Black and white America, how the lies that connect us and the untruths and the half-spoken truths and the incomplete stories stop us from truly being one community. And most importantly, um, five days is a way to think about uprisings and reckonings in America. And so I'm just really pleased to be able to have this conversation with you, Wes. Me too. Thank you. Thank let's, you. Let's start by um, talking about the young man whose life was taken from us, uh, Freddie Gray. Um, the book begins, the entry point for the book is your uh, attending the funeral of Freddie Gray and then leaving the funeral and seeing that all the different parts of Baltimore society were going to sort of go back into their corners, but you wanted to, to knit the thread between and among them um, to, to paint a story that would really uh, reflect the entirety of what was going on in Baltimore and so much by extension in the country. But could you just talk a little bit about who Freddie Gray was and why his um, death, you know, rocked the city and the nation? You know, Freddie Gray was a, uh, a, a 25-year-old young man who committed the crime of making eye contact with police and running. Uh, and I think it's, it's important to kind of start with that as a context of, of in certain neighborhoods and neighborhoods that are deemed to be quote unquote high crime neighborhoods, literally probable cause is probable cause can be justified by simply making eye contact and running. Not in all neighborhoods, right? In certain neighborhoods, you make eye contact and you run, you're going for a job. But in Freddie Gray's neighborhood, that was probable cause for an arrest. And so he's chased, he's caught, he's arrested. An hour after he's arrested, he's in a after an hour after he's arrested, he's in a coma. Um, a young man who, when they put handcuffs on him and placed him in the back of the police van, by the time he made it to the University of Maryland Medical Center to receive treatment, he had three broken vertebrae and a crushed larynx. He stayed in a coma for a week, and then finally, uh, he died. And. This was something where, and I, and I remember the reality is when you think about Baltimore and you think about even just the two years prior to Freddie, we also knew the names of Anthony Anderson. Mm -hmm. We knew the name Chris Brown. We knew the name Tyrone West. 
all similar circumstances, similar situations, African-American men, contact with police, dead. And so with Freddie, the thing that was really interesting to, uh, that, that fascinated me about was when everyone heard about Freddie, for many people in Baltimore, it was like, we know this story. This is, we, this is, this is there's a long line of this and a long thread of this that continues. And, um, but there was something different about Freddie in this moment. There was something different that just captured, you know, not even just the city's attention, but, 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 but the world's attention on this 25 year old young man who loses his life simply by having an interaction with police. And, um, and I think there were a couple of things that really struck me uh, about why that moment and why there was something different about Freddie. Um, one was of all those other incidents that I mentioned, you know, Freddie was the first one that was caught on camera. And so there's an importance to that in the idea that the, the, the well, what did you do to justify it argument it's thrown out the window when there's footage, right? The, the, I know you must have said something incorrect, or I know that, that at some point you escalated the situation was incorrect when we are literally watching the officers put him in handcuffs and then carry him into the back of the van and watching him then go, watching an hour later he's in a coma. Um, the other thing was the appreciation that all of us have for this group called Black Lives Matter. And, you know, I, I think about how years ago when Black Lives Matter uh, was first started by three black women, and it's important to acknowledge that there's three black women that started Black Lives Matter, how when Opal and Alicia and, 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 and Patrice come up and say this statement that seems like it is basic, but it causes this uproar about Black Lives Matter. But the reason that became really important, I think, in the case of Freddie as well, is Black Lives Matter in a relatively short period of time went from a hashtag to now an active mobile organization that could move and disperse and activate quickly when these things happened around the country. Remember, it was just, you know, just a little bit before that, there was Michael Brown, right? And the movement very quickly to go from Ferguson into Baltimore quickly and mobilize. Um, and so this drove a level of attention that in many ways, some of the other incidences that we'd seen in Baltimore, um, it did not drive. And so I remember attending Freddie's funeral and going to the funeral in the morning. And it was actually that evening when, or the afternoon when everything kind of jumped off. And uh, I attended his funeral in the morning and was kind of looking around the church and looking at the fact there were just, you know, at that, when I was there, hundreds, but it turned into thousands of people showed up, like everybody showed up to Freddie's funeral. Um, and A, it was the first funeral, funeral I've ever attended where I didn't know the person. Hmm. And that really struck me because it was one of these things where I felt like in many ways that was part of the problem. It, hmm. um, it was one of the things that actually made me truly under, understand my own complicity in all this. And you're looking around the church and you're just like, are any of us, any of us prepared to do what it would take to make sure that something like what we're watching right now actually doesn't happen again? Um, and then I also learned more and thought more about the life that we asked Freddie to live. And that's where I knew and I decided at that point, I was like, I, I, I have to, I want to tell this story. I want to do it through the eyes of these other individual people. 
but I, I want to be able to try to capture in my own mind and process in my own mind this moment we found ourselves in um, and why it matters and why it should matter on a deeper level than even just what we saw in those days. So tell me about um, those people that you decided to tell the story through. It's, it's eight different people. Um, tell me about some of them. It's, it's, it's a lot, Heather, because I mean, if Baltimore is nothing else, it's a city of characters. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and I found myself so like, you're talking to all these people from all these different stripes and places and, and, and demos, and everybody had ideas. Yeah. Everybody had thoughts. Everybody had their own hypothesis and their own conspiracy theories and all that kind of stuff. And so actually one of the toughest parts of the book was going through and identifying who were the people, who were the stories that you want to tell out of these, out of the dozens of people who you're talking to, which, which eight make the cut. Right? And actually, initially, it was, uh, it was about seven. We ended up, adding on, uh, ended up adding on one more later on. But I wanted to try to include names of folks who all represented different, different perspectives. So the, almost the idea of saying that, you know, no matter where you sit, there's someone in the book who probably will really resonate with you mm. within the others. And there's probably someone in the book who you vehemently disagree with. But that's human nature, yeah. you know? And that's kind of what I wanted to explain even with that situation. And so, uh, you know, as I was going through deciding that one of the people, you know, I knew you cannot tell a story about the history of policing in Baltimore without including the name Tawanda Jones in it. Mm -hmm. Tawanda Jones is a, uh, a woman whose brother, two years before Freddie Gray, died in police custody, a guy named Tyrone West. And Tawanda Jones, every Wednesday, Literally, in fact, yesterday I participated and yesterday was the 360th mm. West Wednesday, where every Wednesday she holds a protest, demanding accountability for her brother. Mm. She has not missed a Wednesday. Mm. Rain, sleet, snow, virtual. She has not missed a Wednesday. And every Wednesday she fights for her brother. And so she found herself in the middle of everything because, the, the, because Freddie's family knew about her, knew her story, asked her to help, help lead rallies and all that kind of stuff, which she, which she was humbled to do. But at the same time, she was like, I love the Baltimore standing up, but where was this when my brother was killed? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I knew, I, I knew that I wanted to profile uh, a guy named Mark Partee, who was a police major and who grew up in West Baltimore now was one of the highest ranking African-American officers in the Baltimore police force and found himself leading the area where everything kind of jumped off at. And, uh, and, and one, of the, one of the fascinating things I had, I found in a conversation with him was he said to me, he said, you know, I know for a fact that none of my colleagues woke up that morning with homicide in their minds. Mm -hmm. But I also know that for those kids in West Baltimore, I understand why they don't believe me. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so he found himself really battling throughout these days of, of, of justifying both sides, which I, in, in a really fascinating way, which I, and I loved exploring, you know, his story. I loved exploring, you know, this, the story of Anthony Williams, who runs a spot called Shake and Bake, which I first went to when I was 13 years old. And, and, and the thing I loved about Anthony and his story was he would only hire kids who no one else would hire. Mm. That was his focus. And he went, out, he went after the kids with the records. He went after the kids with the tattoos. He went after the kids who everyone else would look at and say, this is probably not the right thing for you. Um, and I love telling his story about how his interpretation of everything, how it happened, because his store, Shake and Bake, was right in the middle of everything that jumped off. 
and seeing how both the response to shake and bake in that moment and his response to the uprising, uh, I found fascinating. You know, people like John Angelos, who was the son of the founder of the Baltimore, son of the owner of the Baltimore Orioles, who's head of baseball operations, who, made, who was one of the people who made the final decision to play baseball's first game with no fans because the city was in the middle of a state of emergency. But he wanted the world to see this. And he wanted the world to see what happens when these racial divides mm -hmm. essentially explode and implode within a city. Uh, and so all these different characters, Greg Butler, who's a, pro, who's a basketball star turned protester, the one who actually was on the, the, the cover of Time Magazine with the gas mask and his fist up, mm -hmm. and his life arc, and what brought him from literally being one of the top basketball players in the city to then being a person who was saying, let it all burn down. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to explore it through all these different lenses to help people understand and help people see just the level of complexity of that situation, the level of seriousness of that situation, and the fact that for each and every one of them, these, these, these rampant issues of race and these rampant issues of poverty, how it showed itself all throughout this entire scene, and it showed itself because we had yet to wrestle with our past, yet to wrestle with our history, and then when we don't, these things just continue to expose themselves in different ways. I want to get to the current moment, but before that, I want to stay a little bit in 2015 in those five days, you know, the five days that you take for the title of the book, Five Days, The Fiery Reckoning of an American City. Um, you are a proud son of Baltimore, Rhodes Scholar. You've gone on to, um, you know, obviously being a best-selling author with, I, with the other West Moore, and now you're the CEO of the, one of the nation's largest anti-poverty uh, organizations, the Robin Hood Foundation. Um, what did you, what did the time you spent learning about Freddie Gray, learning about these, you know, these five days and learning about Baltimore in the five now years since then, what did, what did you learn? What, what changed your perspective at all? Um, you know, one of the things that I, one of the things that I, uh, that really struck me about it um, was the natural unfairness of, um, of Freddie's life. And, uh, and how no one, how we spend so much time as a larger society uh, talking about what happened in his death, uh, which we should have. We spent a lot of time talking about the fact that despite he was a young man who now had a broken vertebrae and a crushed larynx, that there has yet to be a single officer to be convicted for his crime. I guess nobody, nobody's been held responsible for what happened to him. Um, the thing though, that I wanted to, that, that really hit me and it actually even, it helped alter the way, even though the way I even think about the work that we do is I think about that week that Freddie was in a coma and the horror of it was arguably that might've been one of the most peaceful weeks of his life because at that point he was surrounded by doctors and nurses. By that point, he was surrounded by lawyers and activists. He was surrounded by people who knew his name. He was surrounded by people who cared if he lived or died. Mm. And I can't argue for a single week in the 25 years prior where that was his case. Yeah. 
where he had a city rooting for him. And, and I think about when you think about the horror of what, of, of those 25 years, the horror of his introduction into the world, the horror of the fact that at every single turn, the world was telling him, screaming at him, what they felt about him and how damning those 25 years were. I, um, hmm. you know, there's a, uh, there's a part in it, so I'll, 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 I'll read from real quick, which I, I think is, you know, people say maybe what's one part of the book that really hits you? And, and I say, actually, the one part, one part that hits me every single time is just a simple timeline of Freddie's life. It's just understanding from the time he was introduced into the world, how the world viewed him and treated him. And, um, and, uh, and it's like, I'll, I'll, I'll read this one part. Um, and it's uh, 1989. Gloria Darden gives birth to twins, a boy and a girl. The twins are born two months premature. In her early 20s, when she had the twins, Gloria had never attended high school. She could not read nor write and struggled with heroin addiction. Tiny and underweight, Freddie and his twin sister, Frederica, spent their first months in the hospital. After five months, Gloria brings the twins back to the housing projects, to, uh, to housing projects in West Baltimore. 1992, Freddie and his family moved to 15, 1459 North Cary Street in West Baltimore. The house rents for $300 a month. In 2009, it and 480 other homes just like it will be named in a civil suit regarding the endemic levels of lead paint throughout those homes. By age two, Freddie and his twin sister have elevated levels of lead in their blood and suffer lasting brain damage. The family lives on North Cary Street until the twins are six years old. 1995, Freddie starts school at Matthew A. Henson Elementary School in Sandtown, Winchester. Because of the lead poisoning, Freddie's behavior poses considerable challenges to the school's teachers, statistically among the least experienced and worst equipped educators in Baltimore City. His teachers enrolled Freddie in special education classes, which he would never leave. By fifth grade, Freddie was four grades behind in reading. Driven out of the classroom by his intellectual disability, Freddie spends his early years in nearby recreation centers. 1998, Freddie is spending more and more time out of the classroom, experiencing increasingly long stretches out of school. Freddie starts to migrate to the corners and begins dealing drugs. At home, Freddie's stepfather leaves for drug rehab because of his heroin addiction. Without his income, Freddie's home experiences long stretches without electricity or running water. Freddie's godmother takes Freddie to church, where he volunteers delivering meals to senior citizens and washing cars. 2008, the Baltimore City Public Schools record Freddie's last attendance in school. He's 18. He's in the 10th grade. 19, 2009, Freddie is arrested and sentenced to four years in prison for two counts of drug possession with intent to distribute. 2011, Freddie is paroled and back on the streets. 2013, Freddie is arrested again for drug possession and distribution. Shortly thereafter, Freddie's half-brother, Raymond Lee Gordon, 31 years old, is gunned down near the Inner Harbor in downtown Baltimore. And that brings us to April 12th of 2015, when he makes eye contact with police, where he is placed under arrest by 859. 
and by 926, the city fire department responds to a call for paramedics to support an unconscious male at the Western District Police Station. April 14, Freddie undergoes double surgery at shock trauma. It's, it's, it is determined that Freddie has three broken vertebrae and an injured voice box. April 15, Freddie remains in a coma. April 18, word spreads about what happened to Freddie and protests begin outside the Western District Police Station. April 19, 2015, at seven o'clock in the morning, Freddie is declared dead at shock trauma. Those were his lives, 25 years. And so it haunts me because, you know, I, I, we spent so much time going over and thinking about justice for Freddie mm -hmm. and what justice for Freddie means. And um, it was really through this process that I know that I came with a takeaway that justice for Freddie is not just what happens to those six officers. No. Justice for Freddie is making sure that we actually provided an environment where his life meant something mm -hmm. and where society actually treated his life like it meant something. Justice for Freddie started and should have started in the womb. That's exactly right. With exactly mother right. receiving treatment. That's exactly uh, right. And financial support during that treatment. Uh, That's exactly right. And not treating and not treating an addiction like it's something criminalized, which we repeatedly do. You know, I, I, and, and, and we, have, we have seen this, and, and particularly, and it's not just a Maryland thing, but I think about in the state of Maryland, where Baltimore City has more overdoses than the entire state of Maryland combined. Mm. Right? And, and part of it is that we still have yet to get to a point where we can treat addictions, which is an, which is an illness. This is an illness. And I, I know I have one of my, one of my dearest friends uh, lost his battle about a, about a year ago now. Sorry. And he fought, he fought and repeatedly. And part of the reason that we actually weren't able to get him part of the treatment, which would, would have allowed him to go out of state to go to a place that we thought was a better facility for him to go through was because of the fact that his addiction was criminalized before. So he couldn't leave the state. I'm like, why are we doing this? And, and so, so you're absolutely right. I mean, this, this is something where, where his mother, Gloria Darden spent her entire life in poverty. And we had this situation where part of the, part of the reason that, that uh, and I think about poverty as in its, in, its, in its existence, part of the challenge of poverty is not even just that it's there, it's that it's predictable. Mm. It's that it is, it is, it is, it is, it's sticky. It's the fact that, you know, if a, if a, if a child, particularly a black child is born into poverty, their probability of dying out of poverty are so monumental, mon monumentally slim. And that's something that I think, you know, again, we, we, uh, we as a society have to take a real account for because these are issues that we just have yet to wrestle with, we've yet to deal with. We have made a devil's bargain about how much pain we are willing to tolerate in other people. Wes, you do such a profoundly beautiful job of taking you know, the emblematic tool of a writer, which is the individual story, and then zooming out and tracing where the public decisions and the decisions of the powerful have shaped that individual's life. Um, that is so much the conceit of your first book. Um, I wonder what, what changed for those, of, those folks who are 
paying attention right now um, and who know the other West more, what what's what was different about writing this book um, from writing mm -hmm. the West more? Um, it's a great question. So I think the other West more, I was much more reluctant to tell that story. Mm. Um, in part because it was a it was a deeply personal story, even more so than like the story of Baltimore, where this is like a story about your life and someone else's life. And I mean, I had known Wes for years before even the concept of this book came about. And uh, one of my one of my dear dear friends, uh, a, a woman named Terry Williams, um, who's an, an an author and and also a, a book writer, wrote one of the best books I've ever read called Black Pain. Um, and she said to me, she would always ask me about Wes whenever we'd get together. She's like, how's Wes doing? How's Wes doing? And I told her, I said, I give her the Wes update. And, and I think at that time, I think he was, I first met Wes when he was, I think in year two, year three. And then I that probably maybe around year five of his life sentence. He's still there now. Um, and Jess of Correctional. Um, and she said to me, she's like, I really think you should write about this. I think there's a story here. Um, to be told about these two guys, the same name. And my first initial reaction to her uh, was no. Um, and I said, I don't have time to write a book. I don't want to dig that deeply in Wes's life. I don't want to dig that deeply in my own. I definitely want to share it. Um, <laughs> and she was like, you know, uh, you know, I asked, you know, have lunch with a dear friend of mine, a woman named Linda Lowenthal, who ended up becoming the, the agent for the book, who I adore. Um, but then really having the conversation and saying, um, actually, I think there is a story here. And I, but I went back and the first thing I did was I went to go talk to Wes about it. Mm -hmm. And I said, Wes, you know, I've been approached about actually writing a story about our relationship. What do you think? And without hesitation, he said, you should do it. Mm -hmm. And when I said, I said, why? He said, um, I've wasted every opportunity that I've ever had. Mm. And he said, and if you can do something that both help people understand the consequences for their decisions, but also do something to help people understand the neighborhoods that these decisions are being made in, mm -hmm. then you should do it. And that really became the fire and the focus behind it. But it was a very reluctant process um, for all the reasons that I mentioned. I think for this one, it was different. And for this one, it was different because I felt like the idea of the context around everything that was taking place here, that we cannot miss this. We cannot miss the context of what was being said and what was being expressed during those five days. And that's even why I wanted to include some of the stories, and, you know, so, and as I was going through the process, I knew, I was like, I want to get a, I need to get a journalistic, you know, approach. That's why, you know, I approached, uh, approached Erica to say like, you know, have me collaborate because I've always respected her work. And I remember having a conversation with her about one of the scenes in there, which I thought was really powerful. And it was one of the ones where the kids were yelling at the police. Mm. And it was what they were yelling that was fascinating. They weren't yelling justice for Freddie. They weren't yet. There's like, she was involved. She's like, Freddie wasn't even being mentioned. Mm. They were yelling like, this is from my uncle Buck. This is for the time you put your hands on my mother. This is for, it was like, it was a time when you saw the city and particularly the city's children mm. standing up for the first time. And it was about much more than just what was happening or what happened to Freddie. Freddie symbolized something bigger and it symbolized a bigger problem that was existing within our, within our, our community. And so as those days went by and early on to the process, that's when I just, uh, you know, I was more hesitant to do the other Westmore 
than I was to write this story. This was the story that I, and I said, and I also, I want people to understand that this story is about how can we deal with not just inequitable policing, but the brutalization of Black Baltimore mm. that's taking place. Mm. But the brutalization of Black Baltimore is not just what the police have done. Mm. It's every aspect of our society, which has had a hand to play in the brutalization of Black Baltimore. That the history of redlining mm -hmm. is the brutalization of Black Baltimore, of discriminatory lending, of discriminatory housing policies, of inequitable policies of the GI Bill, all of it, the brutalization of Black Baltimore. And, 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 I, and I wanted to be able to tell that story in a context of this narrative of this moment that captured all of our attention for this moment, um, but also demonstrating the fact that it was a long time coming when we think about the measures of inequity that, that, that exists in the city. And so now here we are in this moment, you and I are talking uh, in late June of 2020, the year that God can just have back. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Is there a fast forward button on this? <laughs> And um, we, we are here in a moment of, of profound, profound Black pain and grief where we have lost over 100,000 people uh, disproportionately Black to a preventable, yes. manageable pandemic um, where tens of thousands of those lives did not need to be lost right. um, because our government betrayed us. Um, and when the national sense of urgency around it from Washington seemed to disappear as soon as it was clear who was bearing the brunt of this disease. Mm -hmm. uh, and upon the, the back of that, you know, now into four months of a pandemic, um, we have had uh, the, the repeated witnessing on camera of um, the hunting, the, the discrimination, and then the murder of Black people from Christian Cooper, Ahmaud Aubrey, uh, of course, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, we did not see, um, but we can close our eyes and imagine what it would be like to be an EMT, an emergency medical technician, uh, lying in your bed and having... Um, Un, un, uh, you know, ununiformed, uh, plainclothes police uh, knock in your door and start firing and kill you. Um, all of this atrocity upon atrocity has fundamentally changed uh, this country right now. And what you've seen is still now three, almost four weeks of sustained protest all over the country. Um, that is not just in inner city Baltimore. That is everywhere from Salt Lake City to Portland, Maine to Tuscaloosa. Um, that is in 95% white counties and 95% black counties. It is in counties with median income of under 20,000 and median income of over 200,000. Um, here where I sit right now in New York uh, was, um, was, no longer is, but was the epicenter of the coronavirus epidemic and then was um, the site of some of the, the largest protests and demonstrations uh, for Black lives and also some of the most um, uh, uh, flagrant uh, and violent repression of those peaceful demonstrations. 
Um, this is the moment we're in, Wes. And so I do want to ask you what you learned, what you think we should learn, more importantly, uh, in reading five days for this moment. Those were five fiery days in Baltimore that in my lifetime, um, you know, we've only seen those kinds of urban uprisings so often. Um, but now we are in what is truly a sustained um, you know, continue to be a daily protest somewhere in this country now, um, whether it's a stroller brigade or a bike brigade or, you know, an online protest or a tweet storm or, you know, this corporation signaling what it's going to do differently. We are absolutely moment in a, in a moment of mass uprising. So what, what should we learn? What do you think will be different? Um, what can five days your book tell us about this moment? Yeah. You know, I, um, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I think this moment has has taught us, and uh, and and, I, and honestly, I, I tell you, Heather, I give a, a tremendous amount of credit to you and your work, because this is the exact thing that you have been that you have been so brilliantly continuing to push on within our society about not only is it that 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 race matters, but acknowledgement matters, mm. and it's something that we just still continue to miss in all this. And 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 I think about it in, in the context of twenty twenty. And and you were so right this year, man. I mean, <laughs> so I, we could, I I I mean I I don't know if anybody could have predicted what this year has brought to us because I mean this this year has has truly thrown two genuine uh, man-made crises mm -hmm. at our doorstep. You know, the first was the introduction of a, of a virus that has had these catastrophic, absolutely catastrophic health and economic implications on our society. Uh, and frankly, implications that we still not even have not even fully wrestled with. We don't even know where the where the landing of this thing is. This is how catastrophic these implications have been. Um, and the other was the very unneeded reminder of of how inequitable policing is in different communities. Um, and the reality is that both of these two crises, despite being despite being different, they expose the very same truth. Mm. Right that while COVID-19 impacted everybody, it did not impact everybody equally. Mm -hmm. That people of color contracted COVID-19 at twice the rate and also died at twice the rate. Mm -hmm. And while police reform might be necessary for all communities, the reality is we watched Mr. Floyd on camera take his last breaths while handcuffed, handcuffed, face down on the ground and watch his name being added to this whole litany of other names like Michael Brown, like Philando Castile, like Freddie Gray, like Walter Scott, like Sean Bell, like Eric Gardner, like Sandra Bland, like Breonna Taylor, like Laquan McDonald, like Tamir Rice, like Ahmaud Arbery, like Trayvon Martin. I mean, like, we could literally just keep on naming names. But the twin crises expose a singular truth. And that's the role that race plays in all of this. It's the fact that dealing with COVID is, you know, dealing with COVID is not simply going to be about the discovery of a vaccine. Dealing with inequitable policing is not simply going to be about the elimination of chokeholds or no-knock warrants. Mm -hmm. You know, the protests that we're seeing around the country are, are, are not simply about policing reform. They are about racism. Mm -hmm. And how racism shows itself in so many different, in every single facet of our society. And when people say, yeah, this is one of the most difficult issues that this country wrestles with, that's not true. It is the most difficult issue. It is the most difficult issue. And it's one that we have tussled with in our history, but we've yet to really get serious about actually defeating it. 
And so when I think about kind of, you know, what were some of the biggest lessons learned from the, the, from those five days and what we're seeing now first, it's, I mean, it's literally amazing going through the book and just realizing how much is just reliving history. Uh, and, you know, and I, and I, even when people have said, they're like, you know, this book is very timely. My, my, honestly, my gut reaction is when wouldn't have this book been timely. And that's part of the problem, right? I mean, we've been dealing with this since inception. Um, but when I think about the ideas of what was different this time around, first of all, I think the bar has risen as to how we define progress in, in an important way. Because, you know, there's this misconception that the thing that calmed everything down in Baltimore five years ago was the, um, was the, the National Guard coming in. When the state was put in a state of emergency, Guard came in, calmed everything down. That's not true. Because the reality is that Saturday after the uprising in Baltimore was supposed to be some of the largest protests that Baltimore had ever seen. The thing that calmed, the thing that, that, that made those protests not happen, the thing that calmed everything down in Baltimore was not the fact that the National Guard came in. There's no evidence to prove that. Actually, what calmed everything down was when state's attorney Marilyn Mosby came and announced charges against the six officers. That, and I remember that day, there was almost like this jubilant feeling of Baltimore because we knew the names of Anthony Anderson and Chris Brown and Tyrone West. And we knew the, th we knew the trend, right? Something happens, there's generally a payout and then people kind of go about their business. Um, but when she announced charges against those six officers, something changed. Because I think for a lot of people in Baltimore, they actually felt oh my gosh, we actually could see officers be held accountable mm -hmm. for this. And now fast forward, two of the officers found not guilty, four of the officers were, uh, their charges were dropped. Mm -hmm. But that moment, that changed everything, everything in the city of Baltimore. Now I think how that reflects to what's taking place right now is when I say the bar is higher is I think that's exactly, like, people aren't okay with just charges being announced it's like you want convictions mm -hmm. the people need to be held accountable for that and it's not just about oh well we now we're, we now see a mugshot of officer chauvin or anyone else no 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 we need to see this actually go to completion and so the bar has been risen on that i think the other thing that feels very different now is the conversations that people are having now um it isn't just about can we make sure that police officers have body cameras yeah you know, it's not just about, uh, you know, how, how do we, how do we uh, you know, add on clauses to things like the law enforcement order, law enforcement officers bill of rights um, mm -hmm. or, or, or qualified immunity. It's not stopping there. The demands that we are seeing right now are actually dealing with structural racism. And how exactly can we deal with all of these various issues in a way with a very real sense of sincerity um, and, uh, and, 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 a, and a very real sense of, of activation and movement. You know, I think about the fact, you talk about something like with Freddie Gray, where, you know, one thing that we should be talking about is the fact that why do we still have children who have to deal with lead poisoning? We've known that lead is a neurotoxin for a century. We've just been very selective about where to deal with it. That's right. And so it's things like that, that I, I, I feel like, you know, when, I, when I'm wondering about what's different, um, a, what, how people define progress has moved. And I think a lot of it, um, I, I pay a lot of respects 
to what happened in Baltimore because I think Baltimore helped to influence that. The fact that what do we consider good enough? Uh, and I, I that's exactly right. Suddenly, uh, charges was, was a victory. That's exactly right. Where, where that, that was the big deal. But that also, in, in, in fairness, that was the first time that ever happened in Baltimore. This was a police department that was, that was months after all this happened, was placed under consent decree because of patterns and practice of, 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 of racial injustice. So there is a long history of this to the point that the DOJ even came and acknowledged and said, yeah, Bal the Baltimore Police Department's got a problem. But no one has ever been even charged for it. And so that, that was such a big deal in Baltimore, the fact that there were actually, for the first time, actually going to be charges filed about police interactions with citizens. Um, but I also believe that as of now, that's not good enough. The charges are, the charges are like, that's, that's bargain basement. Because it really comes down to um, this fundamental sense of unfairness that uh, so many Americans have, um, that there's just so much brutal accountability for any mistakes or any perceived slights by people who don't have a lot of money or a lot of power and that the people with the most power, there's just no accountability. There's just sheer lawlessness. And so the idea of qualified immunity, the idea that um, giving you a gun and a badge means you get to break the law to the degree that you could take someone's life and the assumption is going to be that that's okay. It, it, it strikes people as unfair. There's bipartisan support for ending it now because we, we're just in an era where people, I think, want more accountability. They want more fairness in the system. Yes. Um, from the financial crash to, you know, the continued pollution of our air and water and just how many people with power continue to get away with poisoning us and killing us. Um, and, and that's why I think you see so, so, so such an, a massive shift. We should say that you know, the polling has shown that the last few weeks has seen Black Lives Matter, the idea, the movement, get to majoritarian support um, and just tremendous movement, 20 points movement and approval among white Americans, which yeah. is a huge watershed thing. Um, now, Wes, your book is, is about five days of, of demonstrations, of uprising, of riots and property damage. I think we should talk about that because, you know, this question of sort of what is the identity of the protester, um, what's good protest, um, is, you know, during the period of time in, in mid-June, what we saw was hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people coming out to protest, there being a very narrow and sometimes completely unrelated band of folks in some places who, um, you know, damaged property or who stole things from stores um, or who set fires, and a response of a really multi-city curfew being instilled, yep. period, right? So that it was illegal suddenly for us to leave the house, not to protect our own safety because of the coronavirus or anything like that, but because um, the First Amendment expression uh, of, you know, the First Amendment right to assemble and, and to protest and to speak was suddenly seen as a threat to property. And then, of course, we had the infamous Lafayette Square moment where um, the the where the White House, where, where the President Donald Trump uh, came out and, and deployed an, 
and ordered forces to deploy tear gas on peaceful protesters in advance of any curfew, um, just for him, he, him to have a photo op. So we're in this moment where um, urban unrest and the right to protest and the reaction of police is absolutely at the forefront of our conversations. And for a country that was founded on protest and revolution, in fact, violent unrest and insurrection, um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of stories that we tell about that. So what did you learn um, and what could readers learn from reading Five Days about sort of the very nature of protest and the importance of protest and what it's like when that protest turns into anger and the destruction of property? You know, I, I, I thought about when, when when uh, the current president uh, deployed the 82nd Airborne uh, and had them in Virginia ready to deploy if, if, uh, if, if these protests continue to get larger and continue in Washington, D.C. And, you know, and like, that's my old unit. Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's, that's the unit that I served in. And I, and I, remember, I remember thinking to myself, it's like, you know, the oath that I took when I first joined the military was to defend the constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That's the first part of the oath that I took when I became an army, when I, when I joined the military. And it goes back to the question, and, and you just brilliantly stated it, Heather, it's what were they doing besides expressing their first amendment right? Freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, you know, if there were, if there were people and, and you know, and, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm all for the calls for peace, right? Right there. Uh, I also know that where is, where is your frustrations supposed to go in the absence of justice? And so, and if we have people who are doing the violence and that kind of thing, um, that is also the job of police forces to be able to take care of that and take care of the safety of not just the citizens, but also the protesters. But the idea of calling in the military to be able to do this, I, I just found to be so, so backwards. And, and it's for a couple different reasons. One, it's on this idea of that never elevates the situation. It's one of the reasons that I, I'm, I'm very much against this idea of this hyper militarization of our police forces. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sometimes when you dress for combat, combat happens. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of, of, of both the hyper-militarization of our police forces and having police forces that are dressed up like stormtroopers um, or, or, or placing paratroopers or whoever else in, in American streets, uh, your goal cannot be peace. Mm -hmm. And there's no way you can tell me that your goal is peace when you're introducing tools of war inside of it. The second piece um, is that's not what these individuals signed up for. Mm. It's not why they put their hand on, it's not why they took their oath um, to sit in, and, and give, uh, give charge in American cities. Uh, in fact, if you look at the, the law in Posse Comitatus, there's real restrictions against U.S. forces being deployed in, uh, in, on U.S. streets and doing any form of police function. The third piece is this. If you look at the history of this country, the President of the United States has only activated the National Guard 12 times mm. in the history of the United States. 10 of them had to do with race. Mm. Only two times it did not have to do with race. One was the postal worker strike in New York and the looting that took place in St. Croix after, after a hurricane. That's it. 
Every other time had to do with race. And so my question is we continue, we continue dealing with effect mm. instead of actually dealing with cause. And we continue coming up with a solution of saying, well, if there's action here or people acting up there, let's throw in the police. Let's throw in the military. And it's once again, it's because we're not dealing with causes mm -hmm. that we keep on adding a military solution to effects. And so I, 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 I applaud the people who are out there, and, and to your point, have been out there for weeks now, nonstop, rain, wind, curfew, no curfew, Here corona, flashbangs, yeah. you know, and still out there saying, you will hear us this time. You will hear us. And it is not just the most American thing that we can do, because again, it is, it's not just a core principle. It is literally the First Amendment. The very first thing that they found to be important was freedom of assembly and a freedom of freedom of speech and a freedom of the press. Literally the first thing. The, the principle, the foundation. And so watching people expressing that and then adding, you know, whether it's excessive policing or military forces to be able to deal with it, uh, to deal with it, mm -hmm. um, just shows in its nature a challenge and a hypocrisy mm -hmm. that I think we have to be able to contend with as a, as a society and, and, and call that out when we see it as well. So Wes, you said we keep um, addressing the effects and not addressing the root cause. We have just about five minutes left. I wonder in your work as a CEO of Robinhood, as someone who's a very keen observer of impoverished communities, um, what, what would it look like to address the causes? What do you want to see happen? <laughs> I want us to be as deliberate about the rebuilding of our communities uh, as we were deliberate about the destruction. Mm. Uh, I, I want us to be able to take on and, and first to have basic principles that we know we're not willing to compromise on. So for example, for 23% of people who have lost their jobs during COVID-19, um, well, for all the people who lost their jobs in COVID-19, 23% were living in poverty before COVID-19, mm -hmm. i.e. the working poor. Mm -hmm. i.e. people who were working in many cases multiple jobs mm -hmm. and still living below the poverty line that should be completely and utterly unacceptable when you have people who are working many cases working full hours mm -hmm. and still living below a poverty line one of the other things that exposed for 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 uh for COVID-19 was how many people because of the healthcare system that we have in base right now, where it's very employee employer driven and that type of thing, that when you watch 11 years of job growth go away in 11 weeks, the other secondary and tertiary impacts is how many people we now have uncovered. Mm -hmm. How many people we now fundamentally have zero safety net and are just praying to God that they don't get sick. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that we, that, we, uh, that we are dealing with things like, you know, and, and, you know, basic things that we should be talking about and dealing with are things like the child tax credit. So Wes, you talked about how we so often are just uh, trying to address the effects and not getting to the root causes. What would that look like? What would change look like if we really addressed the causes? I, I think we have to be as deliberate about a fundamental buildup 
that we have been as deliberate about a fundamental breakdown. You know, we've been incredibly intentional about the way this breakdown looks and how it shows itself. And so I think at every single place, we have to be deliberate about what would it mean to actually rethink our society if we did not have that as our fundamental default. So for example, you know, I think about all the people who have lost their jobs um, due to COVID-19. The reality is 23% of them were people who were living in poverty before COVID-19, i.e. these are people who were the working poor. They were working in some cases, multiple jobs and still living below the poverty line. We as a country have to deem that to be completely intolerable. Uh, we have to think about the fact that we have a healthcare system that is, is largely based on employer healthcare. Well, the problem is, is that when you have 11 years of job growth go away in 11 weeks, we now have this, 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 this gluttony of people who are now fundamentally uncovered and who are just praying that they don't get sick. And frankly, for everyone else, we're praying that they don't get sick either because of what that's going to mean in terms of the cost because of the system that we created. You know, we have a, a, a child tax credit system where we have to be able to ask and demand things like making the child tax credit fully refundable. When you consider the fact that 54% of black children in this country do not qualify for the child tax credit. So we have a system that's supposed to be providing a safety net that provides no safety net. And so I think what we have to, when we're talking about what does it mean to restructure our society, it means that it going to this understanding that individual good deeds will always be insufficient if we're not actually thinking about the other pieces in place and the fact that we've had a, a federal and state and local governments who are, have policies in place right now that are both putting people and keeping people in poverty. That needs to be completely rethought. Well, I am so excited that Five Days is now out. It's out from um, the publisher, the wonderful Black Lead Publishing imprint of Penguin Random House called yes. One World. Um, yes. Also, my publisher of the book that will come be coming out in a number of months. Yes, um, and I can't wait for this. Thank you. I, can, I cannot wait for this book. I cannot <laughs> wait for this book. Thank you, Ed. Um, but I say that I wanted to name check One World because so many Americans of all backgrounds are really trying to to learn more right now. And One World is a is a publishing house that is uh, dedicated to multicultural stories, to stories about race and racism, and about who we are as human beings um, in all of our various forms. And so, check out One World um, and basically put an auto buy on all of their books and you will learn so much more about our full humanity. I'm just always so, so such, such a joy, Wes, to be with you. Can't wait for this book to hit the world and really um, remind us of where we were just five years ago when we had five days that rocked the nation um, and five days that showed us about where we can go forward from here. Yes, thank you so much. And Heather, we cannot wait for your book. Bless you and thank you sincerely for everything. Thank you, Ed. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send us an email at podcast at c-span.org.